Here at Mercy Village Church, we are on a mission with Jesus to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. There are eight distinctive evidences we believe we will see if we are truly on that mission. We are a peculiar people, and these are the shaping characteristics of Mercy Village Church. When I was in a very pivotal moment in my life, going through some circumstances and situations, I I was recommended this book by a dear friend of mine at the time, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper, and I've worn it out over the years. Uh, My sister actually bought it for me on my birthday in 2005, and I've read it so many times since then. It was at a place in time in my life when I really, I wasn't doubting the realities of God or Jesus, but I really was questioning whether or not I was going to give my life away to ministry or not, whether I really wanted to invest myself fully in being an active participant of Jesus' church. I read these words at the beginning of chapter 5. John Piper says, if our single, all-embracing passion is to make much of Christ in life and death, like if that's what we've decided this life is for is to make much of Jesus. That's what we are here for. That's our reason for living. And if a the life that magnifies him most is the life of costly love, by this woman know that you're my disciples if you love one another, right? And that kind of love is costly. And if, and if that's what makes Jesus look the best, if that's what makes him look the most beautiful, if that's what makes the most of Jesus, then a life of costly love is a life of risk, right? And risk is right. To run from it is to waste your life. Today we continue in our series. We're in week two. We've called the series Peculiar People. Eight formative characteristics of Mercy Village Church. Last week we kind of talked about how what what I said was the mission trumps and we had another slide before this I'm not going to bore you with it again if you want to hear that portion of it you can go back and listen to last week's sermon but how we have a mission statement on the wall to my left and a vision statement on the wall to my right and we have three core values and these things trump the leaders preferences and desires they trump the members preferences and desires it's the mission that leads us right so when there's arguments the mission settles the argument when there's uh, d- uh, disagreements about which thing we should do or shouldn't do, the, the mission trumps, not my desires or anyone else's. But that mission, right, like so we said, like over the next eight weeks, we want to talk about the evidence that says whether or not we're actually living on that mission together. So that's why you see a magnifying glass over the church and these eight distinctives, right, that mark the people of God as evidence, as, as our evidences, as Mercy Village Church, that we are living on that mission. And last week we talked that we would be a people who walk with Jesus. This week we're talking that we'd be a people marked by risky faith. We sum it up like this in our prospectus. Wherever God leads us in the pursuit of walking with Jesus, so it's tied to the first distinctive, right, that we're people who walk with Jesus through prayer and through his word, we, we are with him walking through this life. 
Jesus called his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We are following him as well. The Great Commission, go to all the world and, and preach the gospel with Jesus. Wherever God leads us in the pursuit of walking with Jesus, we will follow. No matter the risk and no matter the cost. Might we be marked by following God wherever, whenever, and however he leads us every day until the last day. Listen, you can give your life away to a lot of things. You really can. In fact, uh, there's billion dollar budgets out there. Billions of dollars being spent to convince you to give your life away to a whole host of different things. But this is it. Not Mercy Village Church. Jesus. That's it. That's the thing. That's the proposition that I'm making to you today. That it is giving your life away to walking with Jesus that is the thing you should give your life away to. It might sound dramatic, and we're even going to be in a story. You already heard a little bit of it. That's like way over the top dramatic. I mean, it's life or death type of situation. And sometimes for us, it'll be that way. But Or maybe for some of us, it might be that way. But what I want us to hear today is it on a very basic day-by-day sense. What does it look like to walk with risky faith following Jesus? Basic, day by day, but not with any lack of blood earnestness in this call. God is worthy of our following him. God is worthy of our following him wherever, whenever, and however he leads us. Every day until the last day. Father, today what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please Give us in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're in the book of Esther. God's daughters, by the way. On Mother's Day, we talked about a few of them that helped bring Moses' safely into existence and, uh, quite frankly, set off the whole domino effect of the Exodus and, and one day even uh, the arrival of Jesus himself. I just, you shouldn't, I wish we didn't live in a society where you had to be reminded of this, but God is created all of us, male, female, Jew, Gentile, you know, old, young, every to serve side by side in the kingdom of God. And the daughters of God are celebrated throughout all of Scripture, and Esther's one of them. There's no, there's no top dogs in the kingdom of God except for Jesus himself. The rest of us are just serving side by side. And that's the story of Esther, quite frankly. It's, it's one of his God's sons and one of God's Daughters take the front and center stage, Esther rising above as well in her influence, and they make a way for God's people to be rescued. We pick up the narrative in verse 12 of Esther chapter 4. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Now, good, it's a short verse, but should leave you with a lot of questions. The Faithful observer of Scripture should say, have a couple questions. Who's they and what did they say? And if you just parachuted into this passage like we just did then and you don't know the story, you're probably asking about who these characters are too, Mordecai, right? So verse 12 will eventually point us back to verse 11. But before we get there, you have to be introduced to these characters. 
Mordecai is a Jewish man. He's uh, from the tribe of Benjamin, but he's now in Persia in a town called Susa. He's an exile, right? The kingdoms of Judah and the kingdom of, of Israel have fallen. People have been drug out of their homes. God's people have been drugged from their homes and they've been taken into exile in various places surrounding Jerusalem and uh, Israel. Mordecai is one of them. He, he's an exile. He's a loyal Jew. He's also in the story, and we're not going to rehash the whole thing, but he, he comes to some honor before the king of Persia because he discovers a plot to kill the king and he brings it to light. And when he does that, he earns deep favor with the king. But to understand where Mordecai's at and ultimately where Esther's at, you got to meet Haman as well. Haman's the villain in the story. In fact, when uh, there's a holiday called Purim, when the Jews celebrate Purim, they read the book of Esther, and every time Haman's name is read in this story, they boo, literally, as they remember this story, Haman's the villain. He was a chief official to the king, the highest of all of his officials, and he thought he was a pretty big deal. And when he would go out into the community, he he loved for people to bow to him, but there was one man who never bowed to him, and that was our one of our heroes, Mordecai. And this made him so mad. So mad, in fact, that he began to hate the entire Jewish race, and he makes a plot to see them exterminated and killed. It's on to that stage, or even before that has even come about, that God has brought Esther into power. Esther's an orphan, likely orphaned during the exile. Maybe her parents, both of them, were killed. Mordecai is her, almost certainly her uncle, but he's acted like a father to her with, during this time in exile there in Persia. And long story short, they have a, they have a, a bachelorette deal or the bachelor or whatever to find a queen, the king of Persia. And Esther wins, the, she gets the rose or whatever. And she becomes the queen, one of the queens. And now she has an audience with the king. And what a great time for that to have happened because if the Jews ever needed someone who had an audience with the king, it's now. Because if you go back to Esther chapter 3, verse 13, you read this. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So this nationalist uh, uh, surge that has come about from Haman's hatred for Mordecai has brought the Jews to the very bottom. And now there's a date on the calendar where if you want to bring out your personal weapons and Destroy the Jewish people, you're welcome to it. And you better believe that that was exactly what was going to happen. There was hatred for the Jews, not just in Haman's heart, but in the hearts of others. And now it was legal to kill them. So they're counting down the days to their death. And that's what Mordecai comes to Esther about. I told you that verse 12 points back to verse 11. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4 say this. Then Esther spoke to uh, attach her and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, so Mordecai has brought to her his concern. You got an audience with the king. We need you to leverage it to save 
your people. But she responds back to him, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. We don't know why. Maybe he's grown apathetic towards his new queen. Maybe there's some tension between them, but they haven't seen each other for 30 days. And if she decides to walk in there and say, hey, by the way, your chief official is trying to kill the Jews and I'm one. So we need to do something about this. If he's not in the mood to see her, it could result in her death. Instant death. This is the context of risky faith for her. Risky faith always comes in a context. It's the context that makes it risky. For her, it's being the queen and and having some distance at this time from the king. And there's the risk of death. For you, your context might be your career or your family or your friendship with somebody or maybe a ministry endeavor. There's a context in which maybe you will be called to risky faith. Maybe to tell the truth will come at a cost that you're not sure you're willing to pay. Right? Basic day-to-day truths. Some magnificent go before the king and maybe die truth, but even just the basics sometimes. Maybe the truth will cost you something. It's risky. Confrontation needs to happen in a relationship, but you're afraid it will burn it down. There's risk involved. Maybe there's something you've been called to give away. Whether that's monetary or uh, a spiritual investment or a physical investment in something, but it's going to require sacrifice. There's risk involved. Maybe forgiveness is going to cost you something that you've been holding on to. You've been holding on to it so long that you've kind of grown comfortable holding on to it. There's risk involved. It's the, the context of risky faith. But into that context of risky faith comes a call to risky faith. It's what happens for Esther. It's what happens for us. The The call gets its foundation laid in verse 13. Then Mordecai told them, he's going to reply back. She says, I can't go, I'll die. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. The first thing I want you to understand about risky faith from this passage is that it's rooted in reality. It's not some like ethereal thing. It's not some wild hair. It's not some like um, you get some liquid courage in you and you make some bad decisions type of thing. It's grounded in reality. Mordecai says you can die in the service of the king of kings or you can just die. That's your reality, Esther. Don't forget it. You can die in the service of the king of kings or you can just die. Hear me, nobody gets out of this thing alive. That's what he's saying to Esther. It's the truth for us as well. Nobody gets out of this thing alive. Certainly none of us get out of this life without a certain amount of risk. Risk is required. 
C.S. Lewis has this amazing quote. It's convicting though too. He says, there's no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything. And your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. He says, know this, in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is is damnation. The life of love is a life of risk. You can either risk your life, risk your heart being broken in the service of King Jesus, or you can let rigor mortis set in and your heart can just die a slow and painful death. That's the reality of it, right? Like like the reason risky faith feels risky to us so often is because we think we know better than God does. God knows reality. He defines reality. And if God says, follow me, and at my right hand are pleasures forevermore, then in that reality, what we think is risk is often just an opportunity to walk with Jesus. Risk is oftentimes just another word for opportunity, opportunity to walk a little bit closer with Jesus. So that's what he says to her. He says it's not disconnected from reality. And then in the next verse, he talks about how it's rooted in the promises of God. Verse 14, he says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. He says, first of all, God is going to keep his promises. You can bank on that. He will deliver his people. Know it for sure. Remember Paul, when he was at the church in Corinth, or writing to the church at Corinth, he says, we don't want you to be unaware of the suffering that we experienced in Asia, but know this, that God brought us closer to himself through that, made us rely on him who raises the dead. And then he says, for our God delivered us. And then he says he will deliver us. And he feels like he needs to emphasize it again. On him, we know with absolute certainty that he will deliver us. I just read in the Psalms this morning as I was praying through the Psalms, praying for y'all, praying for myself. But God is a deliverer. It's all through the Psalms. He delivers and Mordecai's banking on that. He says, God's going to deliver. It doesn't matter what you do, Esther. And that brings us to the second point. He, He doesn't quote unquote need you, Esther. He doesn't need you. He will accomplish it regardless. That's what he goes on to say in verse 14. He says, the uh, uh, deliverance will arise to the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Nobody gets out of this alive. He's just reminding her of that. You're going to die eventually anyway, Esther. Why not go out in a blaze of glory chasing after the God who promises to deliver his people? So it's rooted in the promises of God. It's, it's, 
it's the reality that God doesn't necessarily need you, but instead it's an opportunity. And this is kind of the crescendo of the, of the verses here. He says, who knows, Mordecai to Esther, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He says, maybe God in his providence has worked it out so that you would be queen for such a time as this. Don't miss the opportunity. You have the opportunity to participate in what God's going to do. God's going to rescue his people. He's going to do it. Esther, he doesn't need you to do it, but maybe he's put you in a place where you can be a part of it and you'd be a fool to walk away from it. Take hold of the opportunity to live as Christ, to die is gain. Maybe where you live, with the neighbors that you have, the community that you're in, Maybe God's brought you there for such a time as this. Maybe where you work, God has brought you to where you work for such a time as this. Maybe the kids that you have, God's brought them to you for such a time as this. Your spouse, your cousins, your parents, your siblings for such a time as this. For such a time as this. It's worth the risk. Maybe you coach who you coach for such a time as this. Maybe God's calling you to a career change for such a time as this. Maybe God's calling you to plan a church or to go back to school or to go to the nations for such a time as this. Risk is right if you're walking with Jesus. Because risk is oftentimes just another word. For opportunity. So Esther responds. So we have a context of risky faith. We have a call to risky faith. And now we see Esther's response of risky faith. Starting in verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. And hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days. Night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. That's her conclusion. Makes me think of uh, Rocky. What's he say? If he dies, he dies. <laughs> Isn't that one? Nobody know what I'm talking about? Ivan Drago, doesn't he say that? Oh, thanks. Thanks, guys. <laughs> That's exact. Sometimes I just completely misquote movies or make up things that happen in movies. I'm glad this time I did not. She says, if I perish... I perish, just like Peter, Andrew, James, and John last week when Jesus says, leave behind your small business and your family and your security and follow me, and they did because they knew something about Jesus. She knows something about God. She knows that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. She knows that in his presence is the fullness of joy. All her fountains, everything good that wells up inside of her is in him. She knows that. She's not just some risk junkie, by the way. If you grew up in the right branches of Christianity, you may have seen a lot of just um, emotionalism that leads you to believe that the riskier it is, the more difficult it is, the harder it is, that just guarantees that it's the right decision. And so people sometimes are convinced that if they fly off half-cocked and do something completely radical, that then they are automatically obeying God. That's not true. This is grounded in faith for her. She 
She's not just jumping into this decision. She's been wrestling with it. Now, there is urgency to it, so her timeline is a little quicker. It's rooted in faith, and it's preceded by prayer and fasting. She takes it very seriously knowing what God has for her or doesn't have for her, and it's done communally. She draws near to others, and together they draw near to God. If nothing else, risky faith is an opportunity to draw near to God. Doing something that maybe is outside of your comfort zone and obedience to God is an opportunity to draw near to God. Through prayer and community with others, she fasts, she deprives herself of something to experience the sufficiency of God. Those are all opportunities. I'll never forget how close God drew near to my wife and myself as we were making the decision to plant this church. Any knucklehead could have planted this church, by the way. Um, in fact, it's a bunch of knuckleheads that did. <laughs> but I remember sitting on my porch, and then later my wife and I had a conversation in our inside the house, just that God was doing something in Barbersville. But he was at work, almost like Mordecai says, God's going to deliver his people. <laughs> God's going to do something. It almost felt like there was a train, like, leaving the station. The move of God in Barbersville train, and, and Mordecai, God was saying to us, hey, maybe God's brought you where you are for such a time as this. We made a lot of difficult decisions during that season and time, and God was so close to us. We could pass a mic around this room, and, and there'd be others who could tell those stories too. It's, I'm not a hero by any stretch of the imagination, not even close. There were some others that made that journey and have been making that journey with us. You, you are among those people. We're stepping out in faith, and God is close to those when they do. And it's not done rogue. It's not done Lone Ranger style. There's trusted people in Esther's life standing around her, and none of them are like, well, this is going to be a clown show, you know? Or, uh, don't do it, Esther, you idiot. There might be some people like that in your life, but the overwhelming majority of the people in her life, right, are with her in this. Which actually brings us to the last verse. Mordecai then, this is verse 17, Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered. Be that kind of ally. If there's someone in your life who is advancing forward in risky faith, stand with them. Pray with them. Fast with them. Suffer with them. Celebrate with them. Even move with them. I have this hope that one day churches will be planted out of this church plant. Maybe in those moments, God will call some of you to go. To risk it again, to see another church planted. How beautiful would that be? We can't close without being reminded that the story does have a happy ending. Esther's risky faith leads to the salvation of her people. I'll just read verse 19. It's the aftermath. You can go read Esther this week if you're not familiar with how the rescue comes about. But 
Chapter 9, verse 19 says, Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns to this day hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of, for gladness and for feasting, as a holiday, as a day on, on which they send gifts of food to one another. The point is this, the day that they were all supposed to, to be dead was the 13th. But now, because of the grace of God at work through Esther's risky faith, the day after what was supposed to be doomsday is now party day. And still to this day, it's called Purim, they celebrate. That a woman, risky in her faith, facing death, did the right thing, walked with God, and God used that to rescue his people. To sum it up, risky faith is not, a couple things, it's not Lone Ranger, it's not just going rogue. It's it's not separated from reality. It's not some wild hair. It's, it's not always dramatic. That's the point I really want to drive home because you read stories like this and you think, well, risky face not for me because I'm not in life or death situations. But maybe sometimes risky faith is keeping your mouth shut <laughs> even though you want to protect your interest or protect your reputation. Right? Like, that's more like day-to-day risky faith. Sometimes risky faith is opening up your heart to love again, even though you've been burned in the past. Speaking of which, and I know some of the stories of those who are listening and, and are sitting here, that maybe it's opening your heart to the church again. Because you've been burned by the church. But to invest yourself in A church fully will require you to be vulnerable again. There's risk. Here's what risky faith is. It's communal. It's together. It's prayerful. And it's right. Risk is right in following Jesus. And Jesus is the one that shows us that. He's the better Esther, by the way. We were all doomed. See the gospel in the story of Esther? We were all doomed, just like the Jews in Persia. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The Bible says that uh, by one man sin entered in the world and death by sin and death passed upon all men for all have sinned. We're all doomed because of that sin. That sin is to be punished. The punishment for that sin is death. We're all doomed. We need a savior. The people of Israel, the Jews, needed a savior. Esther would be that savior, but the better Esther, Jesus, is our savior. Hebrews 12, 2, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who through the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus went to the cross, bearing my sins, bearing your sins, was punished on behalf of sinners like you and sinners like me, that he might be our savior so that we might be made right with God. And three days later, he was raised from the dead. The Jews needed a mediator in Persia. They needed somebody who was in good with the king to talk on their behalf. We need a mediator too. And Jesus becomes that for us. Romans eight thirty four. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God 
who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus sits in the presence of God ceaselessly, always with his nail-scarred hands and his nail-scarred feet as we bumble and stumble through this life, messing up time and time again, saying, I died for that sin. I died for that sin. It's under my blood. It's forgiven. He speaks on our behalf in the presence of God, just like Esther spoke on behalf of the Jews in the presence of the king. Jesus is the better Esther. Jesus can be your savior today if you're not a Christian. You can be your mediator today if you're not a Christian. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. Believe the finished work of Jesus on the cross was enough to make it possible for you to be made right with God and you'll be saved. If you are a Christian, risk is right. I don't know what it looks like in, in your life, but there's two things, ways to maybe think about it. One's the dramatic stuff, like the wild, crazy ideas that maybe God calls you to. Talking like like huge life changing decisions. Is God calling you to something that's like kind of like dramatic and out there? Or are you close to someone? There's someone in your life who's being called to something that is, you know, life changing, direction changing, that in obedience to God would appear as risky faith. If it's if it's you who's being called this week, how are you going to proceed? Don't just sit on the fence anymore. How are you going to proceed? Seek God's face, faith, prayer, fasting. Get some community around you, people who love Jesus and can speak into this life-changing calling. And if it's someone you love who's being called to something big, how will you be an ally to them? How will you come alongside them and walk with them through this moment of risky faith? But more importantly, and this is where we finish, is. I think this is the more important question, quite frankly, because it brings it down to like where we are today. What I would love for you to think about this week is what are one or two daily, normal, right? Like they're, they're not like going to upheave your whole life, but two or three, one or two, three daily things that you know you should be doing. These would be helpful to me or helpful things to others. These are habits that I should have in my life, but you're, scared to do them or you're you're unmotivated to pursue them maybe it's to share the gospel with somebody maybe it's to start a habit of reading the word of god even though that might cut into your weekly routine time or something i don't know i don't know what it is ask god to reveal that to you what are some basic things that require a little bit of sacrifice require a little bit of risk that god's calling you to in your day to day life There's no risk too great in pursuit of the treasure that is the kingdom of God. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture, it's a one verse parable that Jesus shares in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You see it? The kingdom of God, right, is hidden. Not everybody sees the beauty of the kingdom of God. But when you discover it and you discover where you can engage the kingdom of God, it's worth giving everything away for. Because the dividends of that investment will outweigh the cost of risky faith. 
The man bought the field because the treasure in the field was worth more than the cost of the field. It was worth more than everything he had. So he sold it all and bought the field. Risky faith is an opportunity to walk with Jesus. Jim Elliott says this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Risky faith is one of our distinctives because it is worth, worthy of any risk that you could enter into to follow after Jesus. God is worthy of our following him wherever, whenever, and however he leads us. Every day until the last day. What does that look like for you today? And what does that look like for the rest of your days? Father, I I know I've got two or three things. You've revealed them to me this week. And even as I preach this sermon to everybody else, I still am not 100% ready to lay it on the line. So I preach as someone who still needs transformation, still needs your grace, still needs the Holy Spirit to work in me, still needs my life to be transformed. I still need to believe your promises. I still need you to do a work in me. And I know sitting in these rows or people need the same thing from you, whether it's a super dramatic calling on us or someone we love, or it's just some basic day-to-day things that need to change. And we feel like the cost is greater than the benefits Will you reveal to us this week, this day, that the benefits are eternally worth it because it means we get to walk with you. And we'd step out in risky faith, do what you're calling us to, regardless of what it costs. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. And we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.